We'll go ahead and get started here. Um, today we is uh, this Tuesday, the September 29th. Um, today is the uh, should be the feast of Saint Michael and all angels. Uh, we celebrated this last year because it fell on a Sunday. That was kind of nice. Um, and I have a friend who's a pastor here in Texas who moved the feast to this last Sunday. And I was thinking to myself, eh, I mean, I can understand if you want to celebrate it, but I wonder if we can get to a point where, like, you know, we'll celebrate certain feast days on that day. And, I don't know, it just depends on the culture of the church. But um, here's, here's a little bit about St. Michael from the Treasury of Daily Prayer. Uh, the name of the archangel Saint Michael means who is like God. Michael is mentioned in the book of Daniel as well as, Jude, as well as in Jude and Revelation. Daniel portrays Michael as the, the angelic helper of Israel who leads the battle against the forces of evil. In Revelation, Michael and his angels fight against and defeat Satan and the, and the evil angels, driving them from heaven. Their victory is made possible by Christ's own victory over Satan in his death and resurrection. A victory announced by the voice in heaven now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, Revelation 12.10. Michael is often associated with Gabriel and Raphael, the other chief, chief angels or, or archangels who surround the throne of God. Tradition names Michael as the patron and protector of the church, especially as the protector of Christians at the hour of death. So, you know, not that we pray to St. Michael, but that, you know, he certainly is there. Hey, there's the shades coming in right now. Um, right, yeah, she's not falling into that one. All right, so with that about St. Michael and all angels, we'll begin with a word of prayer. So, the... The Lord be with you. And with the Spirit. Let us pray. Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted the service of angels and men in a wonderful order. Mercifully grant that as your holy angels always serve and worship you in heaven, so by your appointment, they may also help and defend us here on earth. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, uh, that's kind of nice that t today is the Feast of St. Michael and all angels, because in Hebrews, we're going to talk a little bit about some angels and uh, what that means as far as the context in here. So we, we're we on uh, Hebrews 12, uh, verses 18 through 29, and we had, you know, part one last time. We'll have part two today. Don't know if there's going to be a part three yet, because this is, there's just a lot here that we can get through. I mean, um, you, it's kind of a long section in itself, and when you really, you know, parse it out, there's, there's a lot there. So, um, just as a recap, I'll read uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, just so we can get a refresher on what we were talking about last time and what we're moving into today. So, um, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with um, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to this and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to and to innumerable angels in in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are, sh that are sh shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be sh shaken may, may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be sh sh shaken, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, a lot there. We got through, uh, I think, verse 18 through uh, 22, roughly, right? Um, 23, sort of. We kind of got that far. Right? We're, we're, we're talking about the, the contrast between these two mountains. And what two mountains are those? What's the first mountain that's spoken of there in verses 18 through 21? What's that first mountain? Yeah, so the first mountain is Mount Sinai. So what happened on Mount Sinai? What? The Ten Commandments. Um, Moses saw God. Yep, Moses saw God. Um, what happened before all that, too? Do you all remember what happened before, before the Israelites made their journey to Mount Sinai? Was, did something else happen there? Probably, but I don't remember. <laughs> 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 um, when did... Um, let me see... When did Moses first get the call from God? It's kind of interesting. Where was he? No. Moses, when he got the first call from God to go and be the instrument of deliverance for God's people, where was he? He was on Mount Sinai. He was uh, shepherding his father-in-law's flock, and he was on the mountain... And while he was there, what did he see? Yeah, the burning bush. The bush consumed by fire that did not burn. You know, or the burning bush that was not consumed by the fire that, that, that was burning on it. You know, so it's like there's this revelation, this theophany. We talked about a theophany last, last week, right? And a theophany is a God, God appearing to us. You know, like Theo is God and Thanos is appearing. So God appearing to us in a certain way. And he appeared to Moses at first as the burning bush, right? 
was that altogether, I guess, something that was like an ooh-ah moment, or was there still fear and reverence and awe in that way there? Because the latter, right? Because what did God say to Moses? He said, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground, you know? And as soon as Moses realized what was going on, he fell to his face, right? And, 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 um, and he acknowledged God for who he was, and that was in a fearful way, right? In reverence and awe. And um, in this way, we also saw, like, you know, God revealed himself through the law in the Ten Commandments, and we have, probably have, the pictures in our minds of the movie, the Ten Commandments, right? With the fire that, that comes and writes on the stone and all, and, and Moses, you know, throwing the tablets and them bursting up, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, all this, this tremendous um, imagery that is really powerful, but when you really get down to it, uh, it's, it's pretty fearful. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those pictures where you see it and you say, this is a, this is a kind of a scary thing. It's, it's a fearful thing. Um, so this first mountain is definitely Mount Sinai. We talked about how, uh, the people told Moses, you know, you go and talk to God because the only thing that they saw at the base of the mountain was what? You know, Recall that. In fact, it might help to go back to see what they were seeing there. Um, let's see. Let's go to Exodus 19. So mark your Bibles and Hebrews there. But, it's, but it helps to go back. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Verses, let me see. Yeah, verses 11 through 12 and following, right? Are y'all there? Exodus 19. So we see that in that whole chapter, there's um, Israel and Mount Sinai. Um, and you see there in verse 9, you know, and then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, in, in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Right? Um, For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to get shall, shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. Right? So this is not something that is messed around with. That to touch the mountain of God. To be in the presence, the full-blown presence of God is a fearful thing. Why? What's so fearful about God? I thought that he was glorious and full of majesty and splendor. What's so scary about God? He's the power of life and death. He's the power of life and death. He's a vengeful God. <laughs> yeah. What is he vengeful for? Sin. Right. He is a jealous and a vengeful God. He is just, though. And he's holy, right? He is a holy and mighty God. And in the presence of a holy God, sinners cannot stand. They must be destroyed because God cannot condone sin at all. Um, he cannot abide it, right? It's not something that he takes lightly. Uh, and so for sinners to stand in front of the Holy God, you know, like we see at the end of the uh, chapter 12 in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. 
We're going to look at a, mo a little bit more about what that means and what that, the different implications of that. Because fire has different qualities, right? It has a purifying quality and a destructive quality. We'll get into that more as we go. But we see verses... Let me see here. Um, if we go to... Let me just take a peek here. Exodus... Um, yeah, so we see these, these pictures of uh, God commanding all these things with the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, um, the Ten Commandments, right? Um, all these things about Mount Sinai. And they're terrifying because of who God is and how he's revealing himself. And he reveals himself in the form of smoke and fire, right? Uh, that he hides himself in the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In fact, it's, it's, it's kind of nice um, with, with um, Lottie, we are experimenting with like different forms of like prayer from the hymnal and um, where is it? Is it Tomlin? Um, there's just this part, I think it's an evening prayer, where it speaks about this. Um, it's a thanksgiving for light, and it talks about how God led his people, Israel, by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Enlighten our darkness by the light of your Christ, May his word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, for you are merciful and you love your whole creation, and we, your creatures, glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's this eternal understanding of God leading his people in uh, similar ways, right? Pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, that he is hidden in these things. Because to fully reveal himself would be devastating. And in the same way, he hides himself in the person of Christ, right? That becoming fully God, you know, becoming, being fully God and fully man in the person of Christ, with these two natures that are brought together in such an indistinguishable manner as, you know, rational soul and body, that's what the confessions say, that God hid himself, he veiled himself with flesh and blood so that we might see his face. And that's a blessing for us because he comes not in judgment, but in grace through Christ. It's kind of nice to think of it that way. Um, and we see that here in Hebrews, we'll go back to Hebrews here, Hebrews 12. So what is he saying about Mount Sinai? Is he saying, you've come to Mount Sinai, and that's the end. Obey the law, and don't be a sinner. Is that what he's saying? No. no. He's saying, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. I mean, what... What was so terrifying about the message spoken to them? Not just that it was from a holy God, but what was so terrifying? What was spoken to them? What was so, what was so terrifying for these people that God spoke to them? What was given on Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments, the law. Sinners, when they hear the law, they are convicted. They say, Lord, have mercy. I, I, can't, I, I cannot do what you ask. There's, there's just no way um, that, you know, whenever, whenever we hear the law, it must be heard in such a way and proclaimed in such a way that, I think I talked about it before, that it's a checkmate. You know, in chess... If you get a check, there's always a way out. There's always a little way to get around this, that, or the other. But with God's law, it's always checkmate. You cannot escape. 
you always are condemned. You know, there's, there's this Latin phrase, lex semper accusit. The law always accuses. Right? That's not all it does. Some people interpret that as saying the law, the law um, only accuses. That's not true. But it always accuses. Even when we are redeemed in Christ and we abide by God's law, bearing good fruits of repentance and faith, doing the good work for our neighbor that God has called us to do, feeding the poor, taking care of the, uh, the, taking care of the, the widows and orphans, it's still imperfect. It's not always going to be perfect as long as there's sin in the world. But God's grace is still shown through these things, right? And for where we fall short, we ask for God's grace, right? It's not that we shouldn't do these things because there's no way that they can be pure. But we do them in spite of our sinfulness and God still works through them in spite of our sinfulness. Um, but to hear God's law is a terrible, is a terrible thing for those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Because with only the law, what is the consequence of not obeying the law perfectly? Or in other words, death, right? Death is the sentence. And in a way, it's kind of interesting how uh, Christ has overcome the law we see in our stained glass here that I think Vanita pointed this out, and I, and I noticed this not too long after I got here, but you see the cross, and you see the tomb, right? And on both sides of the cross, what are there? They're the stone tablets. You can see them close up there, and you can see on the left-hand side here, that tablet is broken. That uh, the law can no longer condemn us in the way that it was given. You know, it's, it's not something that damns us to hell because Christ has overcome the law by fulfilling it, not by doing away with it, but by completing it and bringing us into that completion. But still, because we have flesh and because we have sin, we live in this paradoxical state of uh, simultaneously justified and sinner that we hear God's law and we say, you're right, Lord, I have failed. Lord, have mercy. And it's this continual cycle of always being in a life of, of repentance and doing what we can by the power of the Spirit to live a God-pleasing life. And that's where we get to... Um, this understanding that we do not come to this mountain that is fearful in the sense of if you touch it, you will die. But we have come to Mount Zion, to the holy city, right? Um, there, if you read through Hebrews 12, you know, because we're moving on here to the next part, because we covered all that last week. Um, I think it was verses 18 through 21, and now verses 22, uh, let's just try and get through verses 22 through 24, because there's a lot there. You see there's kind of a list. There is seven heavenly realities within those verses, and we're going to go through those bit by bit. We'll, we'll kind of make our way through as quickly as we can, but... When we talk about Mount Zion, are we talking about Jerusalem in the sense that it's in Israel, thousands of miles away? Yeah, what is the new Jerusalem? Okay, yeah, that's true. It's about, that is, you know, speaking 
in part of the full consummation of the age, the last day, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, right? But also, what is it talking about? It's talking about something else, too. It's this also kind of mind-bending, paradoxical understanding of our new reality as Christians. As Christians, what we've looked at in the previous chapters, we've seen that we don't believe in something new. We believe in something that has been around since the beginning. This one faith that has been carried out from Adam to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joshua, to David, and on and on and on and on to Jesus, right? It's this one faith. If those people were all members of the true Israel, and we are descendants of Abraham according to our faith, then what are we? We are members of the tribe of Israel by faith, right? So we are belonging to the new Israel, the ones who believe that the Messiah has come, we are the wild branches that have been grafted into the true vine, right? Um, and we are descendants and we are heirs of Christ. And we're, and um, so when he's talking about the new Jerusalem or you've come to Mount Zion uh, to the heavenly city, to the city of the living God. What took place on the mountain in Jerusalem? What was on Mount Zion in, in Jerusalem? The temple. The temple. And what took place at the temple? Sacrifices. Yeah, the sacrifices for sin, the atoning sacrifices. All these things were taking place because God had promised to be there with his people. That's why... In Jesus' time, all these people from all over the world at that time, the known world, where all the Jews had been dispersed because of the exiles that had taken place, they put down roots where they were in, you know, either in Egypt or in Lebanon or in Assyria or Babylon or wherever. They would all make pilgrimages back to Jerusalem to participate in Passover and the Day of Atonement, Yom, Yom Kippur. They would do these things because that's where God had promised to be in this one location. But now that God has come in Christ and he has taken on flesh in himself, you know, we believe, and I, I was reading in the confessions about, uh, actually about, um, it was the Athanasian Creed, and maybe in, if I'm getting a little too far out there, let me know. But if you look at the Athanasian Creed, it's very distinct in terms of how it's talking about the Trinity, right? But we see that Jesus, although he is God and man, he is not two but one Christ. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. But that's important there, right? He is not one Christ by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of humanity into God. That Jesus being flesh and blood has redeemed all flesh and blood, that is us, by his sacrifice of his flesh and blood on the cross. That all people are now redeemed through him by faith, right? By his grace through faith. So in that way, we've talked about before in Hebrews about Jesus is our high priest now, right? He is in the heavenly sanctuary and he presents his own body as the one true sacrifice for all sin. And that's why the ascension is so important. Because 
I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again because it's worth repeating, that if Jesus was still in the flesh as he was after he rose from the dead and he didn't ascend into heaven, he would be in one located place, but only that one located place. So if Jesus was over in Africa, if he was in Kenya or in Ethiopia or Madagascar or whatever, China, name it, if he was there, we would say, yeah, Jesus is over there, but he's not here. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because if he has ascended to the right hand of God, he is in the seat of power. And he has dominion. And now, by his word spoken and the spirit working through his word spoken and his sacraments given, he can be in all places and in the specific place of the church. And that's why when he talks about you have not come to this mountain that may be touched, but if you touch it, you will die. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the place where God has promised to be. And where he has promised to be is where his word is preached, where it is purely taught, as it were, as we believe as Lutherans from our confessions. It is where the word is purely taught and, the, and these sacraments are rightly given. So here, in this place, in Little Fredericksburg, Texas, God the Most High dwells. He dwells in the divine service. He is here present, truly, not just symbolically, you know, not just, you know, in, in some ways, you want to get into these little distinctions of, you know, spiritual and whatever. It's easier to say he's really present. And when he is present, as he has promised to be, he is present for one thing only. And that is for the, the uh, well, he's present for the forgiveness of sins, right? The word of absolution spoken, the remembrance of baptism and the sign of the cross, the reception of the body and blood of Christ for the strengthening of our faith. But we'll see here, um, actually you see that uh, <laughs> verse 25, we're skipping ahead a little bit. In verse 25, you see that the author of Hebrews says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So even here in this place, God calls his people and he calls all people to himself. And when they are here and they, or wherever the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly given, Wherever that is, you know, it's, you know, people, I, I think you get this understanding that, you know, it's like, well, I've heard, I've heard a lot of pastors say, you know, I'm not a law guy, I'm a gospel guy, as if that makes all the difference in the world, but really it doesn't, because rejecting the gospel is just as bad. If you reject Christ, and you reject this grace that is freely given to you by saying, no thanks, I'm good, then you despise the gift of God. You despise this wonderful thing, and you won't escape the punishment for that. And it sounds kind of funny, you know, there's punishment for not receiving a gift, right? But we don't receive this gift not because, you know, it's... it's it's one of those things where while we still live in this world, God is showing his grace and his patience by not coming right now to destroy, destroy those who don't believe and cast them into the fiery lake and all this stuff like that, right? He's showing his mercy by prolonging his return so that those who would believe will. So while, you know, it's, it's, it's like we pray in uh, the old... TLH, the general prayer, you know, 
Give us the work that thou hast given us to do while it is still day, before the night comes when no man can work. Right? So while it is day, it is incumbent upon us to go and to tell people, listen, you know, you're a sinner, <laughs> I'm a sinner, but God has grace for me and he has grace for you in Jesus Christ. And we'd like for you to hear more about that. Come to church on Sunday and see what more there is, right? Um, and all we can do is entreat people to do that um, and ask them to come and see these wonderful things. But it's interesting because um, we'll go back here to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Um, that's the first heavenly reality that's here. And Dr. Kleinig says, this is all within the divine service, of course, right? He's all about the divine service, all about the divine service. But really, um, that's what we're called to do as Christians. The highest thing that we can do as Christians is to give thanks and praise to God. And the highest form of that is in the divine service because we're giving thanks and praise for the life-giving body and blood, the forgiveness of sins, all the grace that he bestows upon us in real time and in a real location. This is the place where God calls his people to receive his gifts, and we give him thanks and praise. And then throughout the rest of the week, before, before we get to the next, before we get to the next Sunday, we continue to give God thanks and praise by bearing good fruit, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, serving our, our neighbors, right? In love, the love that has been given to us by Christ, right? So everything flows out of the divine service. Um, everything flows out of that grace given to us in the congregation. Right? Um, so that all begins in Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. God is alive and dwelling here in this place when his word is preached and when his sacraments are given. And from there, we see that, you know, the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering, that's the second heavenly reality there that this is new for us in human history. Today is the Feast of St. Michael and all angels. And, you know, Dr. Kleiner makes an interesting point here that the angels accompanied the Lord in his theophany at Sinai, and they performed the heavenly liturgy in his presence. They prostrated themselves in adoration before him, as they glorified him, praised him, and blessed him. So just as the Israelites praised the Lord in his earthly temple, the angels sang their song in the heavenly temple. You know, there's this mirror of a heaven re heavenly reality going on here, that when we looked at the temple before, the, the different manifestations of the tabernacle, and then the temple of Solomon, the temple of Herod, they all had the same outline but they were divinely given by God to mirror this heavenly reality, the heavenly sanctuary. Remember that? That, uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of funny that, well, you're, you're seeing more of a resurgence uh, in terms of uh, churches and, um, I guess, like, what is, what is it, like, ecclesiastical beauty? Like the understanding of stained glass, the understanding of having um, a triptych or something like that up on the altar where there's like Jesus and then, uh, you know, St. Peter, St. Paul or whoever, or like the angels on either side of Christ like this, you know, depending, there's different manifestations of that. But these representations of beauty as the heavenly sanctuary, this mirrors what is taking place in heaven as well, you know, um, that now all this has changed, right? In Jerusalem with the tabernacle, 
you had this mirroring. But now, in the new theophany on Mount Zion, the angelic armies do not come to fight against the enemies of God, but to celebrate his triumph. His triumph over all the evil powers, right? That instead of there being this mirroring, God the Most High is here, and the angels are surrounding us with all the saints that accompany them. Um, in heaven, right? So, <laughs> he says, liturgically speaking, the congregation therefore shares the same status and, f and, f and f function as the angels who are his, his liturgists, Right? So it's kind of interesting. We, we share something with the angels now in the divine service. Um, moving on here, the third, the third heavenly reality is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, right? Um, the assembly of the firstborn, really, I mean, that's, that's us as baptized believers, right? That the firstborn sons would be the ones who received the inheritance from their father. Christ is the firstborn, but now we are co-heirs with Christ. All that he has, we now have. The eternal life that he has won is ours in holy baptism, and because of his grace and the faith that he supplies for us, right? Um, let me see, what's the next one? Yeah, and you are called to, to God, the judge of all. Now, usually when we think of a judge, is it positive or negative? Well, maybe kind of negative. <laughs> yeah, negative, yeah. You know, you hear this, I think what, what comes to my mind is, um, <laughs> judge not lest you be judged, right? Or, you know, uh, you know, Judgment Day doesn't always sound so great, right? Um, but we see here that um, God is the judge of all things because he is the creator of all things. And, you know, it's kind of funny that in, in the Old Testament, God's judgment was mainly understood positively. It was positive as writing something that was wrong, right? That uh, in the Psalms you would see things like um, they, would, they, would, they would pray for vindication and acquittal, justice and justification. They wanted to obtain a favorable verdict from God, right? So it was all about vindicate me, O Lord, you know, judge me not according to my sins, but according to your steadfast love, right? These things like that. So for us, we shouldn't fear unfavorable judgments from God. Um, and we also shouldn't, shouldn't fear unfavorable judgments from a pagan society, right? Uh, the persecuting world on the church. We shouldn't fear these things. Because God, the judge and creator of all things, judges us righteous. Not because we're so good, but because of what Christ has done for us. And we are made new creations in Christ. And this is a side note. Uh, I don't know if it's in this Lutheran witness, but there was, uh, you know, um, Dr. Gene Veith, he's a layman. I think it's in this Lutheran witness where he cites a Barna study, um, and there are an overwhelming amount of Christians in America that believe that you can merit your salvation. I'm not talking about Roman Catholics, I'm talking about evangelicals and Pentecostals, and also Roman Catholics, but it's amazing that those who would call themselves Christian 
would say, yeah, you know, you can merit salvation because God wants you to be a good person and this, that, and the other, right? Um, and it's, it's just kind of amazing that, uh, <laughs> that that level of misunderstanding is so widespread. But we as Christians ought to understand that God casts judgment in the end, right? Judgment day is a fearful thing for the unbeliever. It's a fearful thing for someone who believes that they can make it a go on their own and be okay, right? That it's a fearful thing for those in the end when Jesus says, uh, no, I'm being a bad pastor right now, I'm not remembering which gospel this is, but where he, well, he separates the sheep and the goats. I think it's Matthew. And he says, you know, um, he separates the goats and they say, uh, Lord, when did we not do these things and this, that, and the other? And he says, depart from me, I never, like, I never knew you, right? That they did these things all because they thought that it, that it was something that they were going to get tally marks for, and they were going to rack up enough points to say, yep, you're a good enough person, right? So that is a fearful thing for those people. But then we get to the spirits of the righteous made perfect... We'll finish up here and then get to the last one. But the, um, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. First, they are, they are righteous. They are righteous because they had been justified by faith during their earthly lives. And second, the people of faith who have died in that faith in their high priest, Christ, have been made perfect by God himself as his perfected priestly people. Right? That's, that's what Dr. Kleinig writes. Um, so they therefore lack nothing in their relationship with God, for their life of faith has reached its consummation. God has completed his work with them. But it's also interesting that while God has completed his work with them, there's still that element there of spirits, uh, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And like we've talked about before, how in death there is that separation of the body and the soul. That even though their spirits have been perfected, their souls have been perfected, they still await the full consummation where body and soul will be brought back together in the final resurrection of the dead. You know, that full completion will be made in that way. So they wait along with us for that day. Um, it's pretty amazing. And then the climax, right? The climax of this theophany. Uh, before, we, before we end here today, the climax of this theophany on Zion occurs through Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, right? That none of these other things, none of these other theophanies, these six other heavenly realities, none of the... Uh, the innumerable angels and festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn and God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. None of these things are accessible without Jesus. He is the key. He is the linchpin. He is the way that all these things are delivered to us, right? That through him and through his humanity, Right? Like I said before, it's not the divinity, uh, what was it? What was the, uh, the Athanasian Creed? Y'all should know this. Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> Where he said, uh, the Athanasian Creed, I gotta go back to it because it's just so good. It's so succinct. Yeah. That. He is one Christ, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God, right? That through Jesus' humanity, we have access to these things, right? Um, and just as Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, Jesus serves as the mediator of the new covenant, both by establishing that new covenant, covenant in his earthly 
ministry and by now conveying God's promised gifts to his people through it in his heavenly ministry, right? That in the divine service, you know, one thing that I still am wrapping my head around, and it's in the newsletter for for September, that while I'm up here, my imperfections are, and, and, you know, do not nullify what is taking place. My sinfulness as a sinner does not nullify God being present with his people, that he still works through me because the primary actor in the divine service is not me, it's not you, it's Jesus. Jesus is descending and being with his people uh, in a very real and particular way to forgive sins, to call you to, to, to call you to repentance and faith, right? So it's all about Jesus, right? It's the classic Sunday school answer. It's all about Jesus. Um, and then we'll, we'll just stop here to say, like, you know, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we, if we reject him who warns from heaven. Um, and we see... Well, we'll we'll actually try and get to the rest of this real quick here. We see that um, how did he get to this thing? Yeah, I have this interesting note that Dr. Kleinig makes. Um, I don't know. So he says. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Um, I forget how Dr. Klein, I'll, I'll, I'll just say it's kind of interesting. He says that this verse concludes the significant discussion on the relationship between hearing and seeing in Hebrews. Even though hearing comes first, it does not exclude seeing. That we hear the word of God, and we are granted faith by hearing, right? That we don't see with our eyes, and that gives us faith, right, necessarily. That faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. And the word is all is what it's all about as far as how we understand who God is and what he does, right? But because we have that faith, it creates, it's kind of interesting. He says, faithful hearing produces an an enlightened imagination, which, which, envisages what will be in plain sight eschatologically, right? On the last day, the last things. That now, by faith, when we gather at the divine service, you know, soon here, we're going to go back to having the chalice and we're going to gather at the rail again, still in family groups and things like that, but we're going to go back to it because it makes this good confession that when I hold up the host, say, this is the body of Christ, you know, and this is the one cup that we drink from, right? And we have these things that point to the reality of what is taking place. And though we see bread and we see wine and we taste bread and we taste wine, there is a heavenly reality that we can see by faith that we are truly partaking of the true body and the true blood of Christ. That faith creates these things. Not because you break it open and you see that you know, blood flows out or something like that. In fact, quick side note. <laughs> I don't know if I should get into this. But um, what we do in the divine service, um, it, it makes a difference. You're making a confession with what you do how you use your body. And, and I was t- 
telling Amelia about this, that um, you see a lot of, uh, you know, we, we, we make a confession of faith, not just with our mouths and what we say, but with what we do, right? If a Christian says, don't steal, and then you see him holding up the 7-Eleven, that's a confession with what you're doing. In the same way, we confess with our bodies uh, in the divine service by standing up at a certain point to hear the gospel. We confess with our bodies by making the sign of the cross. We confess with our bodies by kneeling, if you're able, to be given the body and blood of Christ because kneeling is a position of humility, right? And so we do these things, and I think that a lot of Christians have forgotten this or they haven't been taught this. It's been lost because people say, like, oh, we just stood up and sat down and stood up and sat down. We kneeled and we stood up and we did all this stuff. It was, it's, it's like, you know, church calisthenics, right? But I think that what's, what's important there, and well, actually, I know that what's important there is that when you understand you're doing these things for a reason to show reverence, to show humility, uh, it makes all the difference in the world because you are not just confessing with your mouth, but with your body, these things. Um, and I think that's why a lot of Christians get lost off in the world of, you know, like yoga and, and, and uh, uh, whatever else is out there because they don't get this understanding in church that what you do with your body actually makes a difference, you know? What you do with your body, uh, you know, diet or um, exercise or whatever, it actually has an effect on your spiritual well-being as well. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a church in Africa, I think it's getting in a lot of trouble here. I think it's Kenya. In Kenya, we're in fellowship with the Lutheran Church there. In fact, I've met the bishop of Kenya. He's a very nice, very nice godly man, um, Bishop Ekong. And um, you see the church there, and they worship in this space at their seminary that's wide open. Like, they don't have walls because, you know, they can't afford the air conditioning and things like that. But you hear, they have the Lutheran service book. They're worshiping in English because they're mostly in, they're mostly, I think, they only speak English there. You know, that's the primary language in Kenya. And you see them, and um, <laughs> we're in the midst of worship wars, right? And you get some people who are for contemporary worship saying, Look at you. You are beating these people down in Africa with your, with your way of worship that's very German. You say, German? I didn't know that. It's German? Actually, you know what? It's, it's actually African. It primarily comes from northern Africa, the way that we do things. True. Um, the, way that, the, the way that we conduct the service and everything like that. And this seminary professor in Kenya, he said, uh, and, and forgive me if I'm getting that wrong as far as being Kenya, but he says, you know, people will say, you know, oh, they've been indoctrinated or brainwashed into thinking that they have to kneel or genuflect at certain parts of the service. He said, no, you want to talk about culture. When we say the Nicene Creed, and we say, and he came down and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, they recognize that that is God the Almighty coming down and dwelling and they immediately kneel to show reverence to this beautiful thing of God being man for us, poor sinners. And he said, no one had to teach them how to do that. That's part of their culture. You know, it's a beautiful thing. And when they hear these things and they bow, right, to show reverence and awe of what is taking place. So, that's not to say you must do these things. That's not to say that if you don't do them, you're not a Christian. But that is to say there's something gained by engaging your body in worship. And if you see what I'm doing sometimes up here, you know, I, I, I could do more, but I don't. What I, what I usually do is, is you'll see me wherever there's in the bulletin or in the, um, in the hymnal, the cross, 
that's usually the indicator that you make the sign of the cross, right? In the, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, you make the sign of the cross at the end. Um, and there's different parts, different traditions, but one of the things that I learned when I was in Fort Wayne was that, you know, you have these things, they're adiaphora, right? Neither expressly commanded nor forbidden, but they are for teaching the people about Christ. And that's what our confessions talk about. Everything we do in church ought to teach people about Jesus, right? So if we're teaching people, don't bow, don't bow, don't kneel, don't, don't do these things, that's what the Roman Catholics do. That's what the high church Anglicans do. You say like, well, I mean, but if we want to teach about Jesus, shouldn't we teach reverence? Shouldn't we teach these things that give our children some sort of physical thing to hold on to as well? Um, it's not necessary, but it is beneficial, however you slice it, that you see me up here. I mean, watch me next Sunday and see what I do. That when I, and, and y'all don't have to do this, right? It's not a mandatory thing. But at the same time, watch and see what I do because you'll see that at certain points I'll cross myself. At certain points of the Nicene Creed, I'll bow. At certain, in the Gloria, you know, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, I always bow. Um, sometimes, I'm not always great with this, but there is the tradition that whenever the name of Jesus is spoken, you do like a bow like that to reverence Christ. I, they're, 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 they're small things, but they help me be engaged with my body and with, you know, the Lord said, you know, the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? With your entire being. So if we only use our mouths, we're only utilizing one part. And when we utilize our body in different ways, we are enhancing that worship in a certain way, right? I was just going to say, uh, there's a church up in Fort Wayne that does all this and a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> like, they got numbers and everything. But what you'll notice in that church, and it's filled with children, is the children are a lot more engaged in the service it's true. because they have stuff to listen for and do. I mean, you think about what we do during Sunday school stuff when you teach them songs, you do like their hand motions with them. Yeah. It's the same thing in the service. Yeah, that's true. You, 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 they, they have an acolyte core, and they do the processions. They do everything. You know, they have a, a crucifer. They have uh, light bearers, you know, and, and these little boys who are, um, they're under 10 years old. They're up there, and at certain parts, you'll just see them, you know, it's like, and came down from heaven, and they just go, and they're, and they're standing here the whole time like this, and you think to yourself, Wow, that's different. But they're engaged. They have something to do, you know? And um, honestly, I think you're seeing more people want that. Uh, but you're seeing them want it for hopefully the right reasons in that it really teaches something about Jesus. It's not a legalistic thing. It's not something that you are commanded to do but it's something that you are encouraged to do, like what they do at that church that we would attend is, and you don't see this everywhere, if there's a very unique thing that they did, I'm not saying that we should do it, but it's just something to think about. During the words of institution, you know what they would do? They kneeled, they knelt. They were on the kneelers in the pews. And I'll say this last bit before we close that a friend of mine at the seminary, he's, he's still there getting his, uh, working on his PhD. And um, he said that, uh, was it, his in-laws are not Lutheran. They're more like Reformed Calvinist or something like that. And um, at that church, at that Lutheran church in Fort Wayne, they have closed communion. You know, they, they, they take it very seriously. And, but, but at the same time, you know, people slip through the cracks sometimes, but they said, you know, don't go up and receive. And the guys and, and the in-laws said, well, I will respect that, but I don't see why they believe anything different than what I believe about what it says. 
But you know what convinced him that what they that what they believed was different, and actually a little. I don't know. I don't want to say scary, but was scary for him because he didn't quite understand it. What showed him that what they believed about what was taking place was really different was that they knelt during the words of institution. They were kneeling, and then you would see what I do. They, you know, all the pastors and everybody who was assisting the, the acolytes and everything, they would all kneel after each set of the words of institution for the blood or for the body and the blood. And when that guy saw this, he said, okay, they do believe something different. They believe something else is happening here that's more than just a symbol. So it, these things, like I said, they make a confession. They, uh, they ought to make a good confession. They ought not make a confession that says we do these things because we merit something, but because we confess something good about who Jesus is, right? Uh, we'll stop there. We're way over time. But hey, you know what? I, I'm having a good time. Hopefully, y'all are having a good time. Um, <laughs> you deserve to have a good time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, what was it? And I'm pulling a lot from the... Uh, uh, I'm pulling a lot from the confessions here, but that, you know, anytime I hear about, you know, what what I deserve or whatever, it's like, uh, what is it? It says we are, yeah, that's right, a new obedience. Um, the forgiveness of sins and justification is received through faith. The voice of Christ testifies. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy s s servants. We have only done what was our duty, right? So... Only doing what's my duty. That's all. Um, we'll stop. <laughs> How about let's, 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 let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.